I'm Angelica Sikorsky. And I'm Emily Koch. And this is Behind the News. Welcome to our first podcast. We're just going to briefly go over the goal of the podcast and exactly what we're going to be talking about on it. The goal is to give our listeners, you guys, advice on how to navigate the media industry, give you guys a peek behind the scenes, and, you know, talk about other people's experiences and how they um, got their own jobs and how they're dealing with the media industry. I kind of just wanted to first start off this week with bringing in Nadia Stewart, who is a member of the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, because of everything that's going on right now. Within the Black Lives Matter movement, it has turned into another movement within journalism of us realizing that we need to be more accountable and take accountability for our actions Something we talked about with Nadia Stewart is how to hold journalism accountable and how education is a super powerful thing when it comes to teaching young journalists starting in like school, how to report properly on issues and how to be professional in a newsroom or not even just in a newsroom, just in the media industry in general. I think so much of the time we focus on being objective as journalists that we forget that we also have to be allies to those communities especially if we are white. This is a mm-hmm. huge thing. It, and I remember Duncan McHugh also talked about this. It can't just be Indigenous people reporting on Indigenous people. It can't just no. be Black people reporting on Black people. It has to be, white people have to care about these issues. As weird as that sounds, because you'd think that everyone just cares, we have to make that extra reality, effort yeah. to represent those kinds of people. Well, it also shouldn't be the job or the duty of a Black person or an Indigenous person to teach white people about the history and about racism and about discrimination. That shouldn't be their job. That should be on us to educate ourselves. It's easy to go online now. You can Google stuff. It's not hard to get information on the topic. So again, to education, that's something we should be taking on ourselves and not relying on other people to teach us. And I think it's really interesting also, just while we're on the topic of allyship, I had someone, a friend of mine who I previously worked with, talk about allyship is something that has to be earned because she said she didn't think she was an ally, even though she's someone I think is so informed and is always like on top of everything and and works really hard to be informed. I just think that's so interesting to think of allyship as something that has to be earned in different communities by continuous rapport building. Yeah. And that's what they talk about in journalism school as well is how to build rapport. And honestly, you're not really taught the differences of building rapport with other people in other communities because it's different for each community. Me building rapport with another white person is going to be different than me building rapport with a black person, just because the experiences are completely different. So again, with the, yeah, like the black allyship, like you have to prove and show that you're willing to actually be an ally. And it's not just something you're doing to save face. And again, that goes back to when you're writing stories, when you're reporting on stuff, just being professional and being proper in the situation and making sure that the language you're using when you are reporting it, whether it be audio, video, you're writing it, is correct 
and you're not using anything that is offensive, which I think a lot of journalists do, and it could be just a lack of education. Again, it's on us to fix ourselves and to educate ourselves and to prove that we are going to be there for minority communities and to shed light on issues and topics within those communities, actually do it seriously. And a big part of that is acknowledging our white privilege off the bat. And -hmm. people think maybe that's before I go do my interview, before I go into this community, I sit down and think about it. I do my research and that's part of it. But a lot of that could also be verbal. I remember also Duncan McHugh talking about when you're doing an interview with, say, an Indigenous person, throw in a joke and say something, oh, I'm just a stupid white girl. Like, what would I know? And I thought that was so interesting because I'd never thought of doing something that way because it's such a simple way to acknowledge your privilege while also reassuring them that you're there because you care about their opinion, not just about yourself and getting out a story. Exactly. Especially when, as a journalist, you are the one pumping news out and people in the public are reading it. And it has to be written or done properly from the perspective of someone who does acknowledge the white privilege or just their privilege in general and has interviewed that individual correctly and knows how to do it and has gained their trust in a way. That's entirely correct. I think it does start the root of it is acknowledging your privilege. And then from there, you can grow and learn. But if you can't acknowledge that privilege, then that's going to be an entirely different issue. Another thing we talk about with Nadia is kind of the broadcast scene of journalism and how Black people really aren't represented on the screen. More so they're represented now, but still they aren't represented as much as white men and women on the Mm -hmm. screen. And that lack of representation impacts young journalists, young Black journalists, young journalists of any race, ethnicity, whatever. And it shows them, you know, that, oh, can I do that? Like, I'm not seeing myself being on TV, being an audio, like on radio. Like, there needs to be representation there. And yeah, when we were talking to her, she had said she had like, she could count on one hand, I think it was three or four individuals who she had looked up to who were on the news who were Black which is upsetting because I think I can count, like it's an endless list for us to see white people in the news and for us to look up to them. So that's another issue that has to be addressed. And she also touched on that as well, how hard it is to get a job as a black person, let alone a black woman right now. And how when she was, came out of journalism school and was looking for her first job, she had to work so much harder just to be accepted and looked at as a journalist because she was black. Um, So that's something that needs to be fixed because it's just built on racism. And then there's that whole other issue of tokenism in the industry. So many people are coming out recently saying that people, wherever it may be, CBC, CTV, have told them that they're just hired as a token hire. Mm-hmm. Just be like, no, oh, we are diverse. <laughs> We're we so diverse. working for us. It's like, okay, drop the joke. Like, we can see right through you. And it's like, is that the culture of today's newsroom? Is that what it's like? Mm-hmm. Because if it is, no thank you. I will take a step down. Yeah, so that's why now with the Black Lives Matter movement, that issue and what they're advocating for is huge in journalism. 
which people may not see that connect because journalists are the ones reporting on, you know, the protests and they're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, but inherently newsrooms, journalism is rooted in like racism and discrimination, which has to be changed and which is evident to a lot of Black people who go to get into the industry and they see those realities and it's just strange to them because they've never experienced anything like that. So that's why it's important for our future journalists and people in school right now to be taught the histories of Black people, Indigenous people, any minority, and to understand their privilege and to be taught how to properly report on these things. So that's basically why we talked to Nadia Stewart, especially since she is the uh, executive director of the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, just because she has experiences herself working in journalism as a Black woman. And she also has advice and ideas on how to better diversify journalism and make it more inclusive. Just so you can know a little bit about Nadia, Nadia Stewart's love for news has taken her from coast to coast. These days, you'll find her at Global BC, where she works as a video journalist. She got her start at Rogers TV Peel as a reporter, anchor, and talk show host. She's also worked as a news writer for the Weather Network, writing weather-centric casts for a national audience. In 2010, Nadia joined the CBC, working as a multi-platform reporter and anchor in St. John's, Calgary, and Edmonton. She also spent six years as an editor and freelance writer for Planet Africa magazine, a Toronto-based quarterly publication that celebrates the achievements of the Black community across the diaspora. Nadia is also proud to be among the first graduates of the University of Guelph-Humber in 2006. Off-camera, Nadia is active in her community as a mentor. So we would like to welcome Nadia Stewart. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Yeah, yeah, no, my pleasure. Good to meet both of you and, and to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to yeah. it. We're just going to start off just by asking you what inspired you to get into journalism. You know, I used to do public speaking competitively when I was in uh, grade school and high school. So I've always loved storytelling and meeting people and, and that sort of thing. But I was also... I think on a, on a deeper level, when I was younger, I, I wrestled with, you know, my, my frustration around injustice. And, and if I felt, you know, that I had been unfairly treated or I felt like I was seeing someone who had been mistreated, I would always be the one to speak up 
even at my own risk, even if that meant, um, you know, consequences for myself. I think, you know, that underlying reason that I never really, you know, talked about, I never really tapped into that emotion of fighting for justice. I, I kind of just focused on, you know, my, my love of, of speaking and, and of meeting people. But I think that undercurrent was always there. And so I ended up pursuing um, journalism in, in high school and then into university and then, you know, launched into my career moving across the country eventually. So you kind of, you started wanting to be in journalism because of, you want to like speak up for those who don't necessarily have a voice and be there for them. That's awesome. Is that something you found that you've been able to do? I think through this work with the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, I've been able to do that more effectively. As a journalist, especially nowadays, because the news cycle is so fast, we're not really going in depth in stories. I don't feel all the time that we really get at what journalism really is, you know, which is that, that fight for justice, that ethical, um, moral fight for justice. I, I don't think that we always get at that well as we could. And so yeah. this work uh, with the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, I feel like there is just a greater focus on that. And yes, focusing um, on doing that work within the industry, but also, you know, I think journalism, good journalism prompts change. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the work that we're doing through the CABJ is, is wholeheartedly focused on that. Yeah. Just to circle back to like what inspired you, did you ever consider being like a lawyer? I know a lot of journalism students want to go to law school after or have like considered being a lawyer through their career. Like was that ever a possibility for you? And is there a reason that you didn't go that route? The 100% law was option B. Um, and, uh, and I remember, uh, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, you know, my mom was like, you know, I think you're going to end up being a lawyer or a journalist. Like it's going to be one or the other. But the only reason I didn't do law was because I, I didn't want to spend years in school. I, I didn't, I was afraid of monotony. I was worried that, that law would mean too much monotony in terms of the court process and that sort of thing. Whereas journalism really has been, you know, a new adventure every day. But 100%, if I wasn't, um, you know, if I didn't get a degree in journalism, it would have been a law degree. I'd say the majority of journalism students have thought of law or are going into law because yeah. I guess it's, the skills are similar in kind of what you're doing um, in terms of justice. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting. I know yeah. both Emily and I have considered it and it's, yeah. it's so different because you get that different kind of freedom. Um, with your work through journalism that you wouldn't necessarily get in law school, which I find yeah. interesting. Did you find it difficult to find a job after finishing school? Like, what was that process for you? The process was a bit frustrating, and, and I think it was frustrating because I didn't immediately leave Toronto. So mm -hmm. I graduated in 2006, but I didn't leave Toronto until 2010. And as I struggled to you know, just find my footing um, within the industry. It was tough in Toronto at that time. Of course, you know, you're a young journalist, you don't have a lot of experience. My only experience was uh, through Rogers Television, doing community, uh, community news. Um, and I also worked for Planet Africa Magazine, you know, mm -hmm. writing, for, freelance writing for them and, and also working as an editor for them. But I just wasn't really getting the experience that I needed to, um, to break in. And I, in my heart, I knew that I needed to leave. I knew, I knew by about 2007, 2008, 
um, that if I was really going to break into this industry that I had to leave. So that was a bit of a family fight for a few years, um, you know, my, my mom not wanting to let go. But finally in 2010, I just, you know, it was, it was kind of a make or break decision. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I left and uh, moved to St. John's Newfoundland for um, the opportunity to work for CBCNL. And that was the promise of eight weeks of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took a risk, you know, just on that promise of eight weeks. Yeah. And eight weeks turned into two and a half years and reporting for them, you know, traveling around the province. It ended up being a fantastic opportunity. When you were in school, did you have many opportunities to get out in the field? Because I know at least at Carleton, like we have to take internships. Did you have any of those opportunities or were you kind of just doing it for yourself when you graduated? So we did have an opportunity to uh, do an internship in our fourth year. And I should mention, I went to the University of Guelph Humber. Mm-hmm. And when I went to UGH, it was a brand new school. I tell everyone I went to like the no-name brand of journalism schools when they when UGH first launched, because it was a, like, that was the first year of the program. So we were, um, you know, you can either look at us as guinea pigs or trailblazers. I felt like we were trailblazers and that we, we sure. and, and going through this program. Um, and so we had a, an internship in our fourth year and, um, and I had a great internship um, at 680 News. But by the time I um, got to that internship, I had already been at Rogers Television, volunteering behind the scenes and then working as a volunteer reporter um, and anchor for them. So I felt like, especially as a black journalist, um, if you don't have that edge over the competition, knowing that, um, you know, it's going to be tougher for me to break in. I have yeah. to, I have to seek out additional opportunities. I have to make sure that I am, you know, twice as good, that, that my resume is twice as strong. As Did you find that that was the reality when you graduated and went out to find job opportunities? It was a little bit more difficult for you? It was tough in Toronto to break in. And I didn't really find that I started to accelerate rapidly until I left Toronto. So I believe very much in leaving the city. I do believe in, you know, leaving and going to that small market and coming back if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not return to Toronto, but just because, you know, my life brought me, ended up bringing me out to Vancouver and yeah. got married out here. So, so life is, is out here now. Yeah. And I don't know if I wanted to come back. I think when I left Toronto, I was, I was ready to, You're, I was ready for a change. Leave. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, was, I was ready for a change. So if I'm being honest, I, I probably, you know, wouldn't have come back anyway. It also broadens your perspective on, on this country. I don't think we can effectively report on this country until you have been through another market because you see yeah. Canada through um, the eyes of another of another city and it's different. It's a different experience. It's a different perspective. Has your experience in uh, different provinces or different cities been different for you in terms of like the way you're treated or how the job is? I, I felt like the job was, you know, kind of the same for the most part, um, you know, shooting, editing, reporting, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's pretty much all the same. Um, what was what was different definitely was leaving Toronto and seeing how people see me. Um, I definitely felt like by the time I got to Newfoundland that people saw my race first. She's black mm-hmm. first and a woman second. Um, and I'll never forget the, the morning that I was, one morning I was walking to work. I was heading to the newsroom um, just, you know, for my regular day of work. And there were these two uh, young white girls walking in front of me 
And one of them turned back and pointed at me and she said, oh, look, there's a, and she said the N-word. And uh, oh the girl her said like, no, like you can't say that. And she's like, oh, no, 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 I call her, I called them all. And she said the N-word again. And that was wow. a very jarring experience for me. It's the first time anybody had ever called me the N-word. I was very much, um, you know, if I, if I think back to that day, I was very much in shock. I didn't respond to them. Um, I was very upset. My colleagues in, in my newsroom in Newfoundland, I, it took me all day before I was ready to like share that experience with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really could tell that they didn't know what to say. And they were like, sorry, sorry, you went through that, Nadia. You know, yeah. they, were, they were very apologetic and, and, and sympathetic, but I could tell that they, you know, they didn't understand, you know, really how that, how that felt. And okay. for me at that moment, that was when I, I really realized I need, I need some kind of support here. Like I need some help. And that yeah. was actually what led me to start to seek out um, the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. Interesting that you point out that as soon as you went there, you saw that people's perceptions of you changed. Do you think that your perception of you changed through those experiences? Or how did you work through that? I think it was definitely a lot of growing. It was a season of growth and introspection and reflection. Um, and I think I, you know, I went through a lot in terms of, you know, who I am as um, a Black woman, as a Black Canadian. There were, there were all of those questions. You know, one of the things that I wrestled with all throughout um, my career that I don't really talk about is even like how I wear my hair on the air. And, and moving um, to Newfoundland, there were no, like, the, the Black population is next to non-existent yeah. in Newfoundland, right? And so I, um, I didn't have a hairdresser. And um, in Toronto, of course, like, you know, hairdressers are a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have a hairdresser in, in Newfoundland. And um, I looked everywhere, couldn't find anyone. And I ended up uh, buying wigs, starting to wear wigs. And, and that's how, you know, I managed to get through doing my hair. But it was always like this, this tussle within me of like identity because I would find a wig. I, I don't know, it looked okay. I wasn't really crazy about it. Eventually I found um, an international student from Zimbabwe who, who would help me and she would, she would style my hair, she would help me styling my hair, but I just, I never really felt um, like I was truly myself in that regard because I just couldn't, um, I, I didn't feel like I could really, you know, wear my hair in any other way other than, you know, straightened, permed, or, or with extensions. And I still wrestle with that. You know, that's mm -hmm. still something that, that I struggle with for, uh, until today. So um, I think, I think, and you know, for every Black woman, is especially we all, you know, go through a journey like this or an experience like this. So I know that I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it helps to, it definitely helps to share it with, with other Black women and, and to hear their own experiences. But it was tough navigating, I think, that part of the journey within the industry. Yeah. You can only imagine also how hard it would be to go into that um, career of video journalism when like predominantly the people you're seeing doing video journalism and being on TV is like white men or like these blonde white women and can't even imagine how difficult that that would be. It's the images and the impressions of beauty that black women um, have always uh, been confronted with, you know, that we don't see ourselves reflected. Um, and so, you know, the message that we get is that, you know, we are not or we are less than, which is, of course, not true. Mm -hmm. But um, I think 
you know, over, over time, I, I was able to, you know, work through it. And like I said, continue to work through it. Um, and if for everybody it is, it's a personal journey. It really is. It's a personal journey. School when you were younger, when you wanted to become a journalist, did you see representation on the TV, on the news? Um, was that something that affected you to see when you turn on the news, you see these, these white male anchors of CTV and CBC, but they're like, did you see any representation? Uh, you know, there are, there are a few that stand out for me. So um, I grew up watching 2020 with my mom and I remember mm -hmm. Connie Chung uh, very, very well. And so growing up watching Connie Chung with my mom, um, I didn't really watch uh, the Oprah Winfrey talk show, but I, you know, have done research on her, on her past. And so knew that she was a reporter and, and her experience and her story I found um, inspiring. But growing up in Toronto, um, I'd also just watch Andrea Kate. You know, I grew up watching mm -hmm. her on TV. And so for me, she was, you know, just, just an inspiration to, to see her on the air and, and always just so consistent and confident. Um, so so those, were, those were the inspirations that, that I had growing up. So mm -hmm. not many. Does it bring you any sort of comfort or fulfillment that you could be that person for somebody? Definitely. And for any, you know, um, for any Black woman, for any woman of color, as, as a young woman, that's the assurance. Like if she can get, okay, if she can get there, I can get there. You know, that's always the feeling. Um, and so that for me was the encouragement in seeing, in seeing Andrea and Oprah and, and Connie Chung. It's like, okay, I can, I can do this too. That's not to say yeah. that it would be easy, but I knew I could do it too. And you could be someone's role model. Someone could be looking up to you. With your role at CABJ, what do you specifically do? The CABJ has historically been a uh, unregistered nonprofit. And so it was mostly volunteers. Actually, you know, it was all volunteers um, who were, you know, running everything, organizing events, you know, handing out scholarships, fundraising, that sort of thing. Um, but this new iteration, new iteration of uh, the CABJ, we're focused a lot on establishing programming and we're actually looking at becoming a full-fledged charity just because we see so much that if there isn't an organization like the CABJ, this industry is not able to hold itself accountable. And yeah. so it needs voices like the CABJ, like CJOC, Canadian Journalists of Color, uh, to, to ensure that, you know, they know that we're watching. It needs a watchdog. It needs somebody to call yeah. it out when it is um, falling down, which it has been falling down for years in the area of diversity. So in my role within the CABJ, it, it is, as executive director, yes, it is to establish programming um, and, and uh, work with volunteers and our team across the country. And it has really been about relaunching this organization. So I came about the CABJ in 20, I started seeking them out in 2010, uh, only to find out that they, they'd fallen apart. And in 2016, I got in touch with somebody who used to be um, the student representative for the organization. She put me in touch with the former president, and then um, I expressed to her my desire to see this organization relaunched. And in expressing that, she said, well, you know, you have my support, and I'm here to help you in any way possible, and, and then began the work of assembling a team. I assembled a team, and, and we pulled people together and mm -hmm. um, got this organization up off the ground. So since then, we've Reestablished programming, J School Noir, which is our education program focused on Black um, Black youth. CABJ Connects, which is focused on career development and networking uh, across the country, particularly in regions outside of Toronto. 
um, and now we're looking at um, developing out our our um, our vision around education and entrepreneurial journalism, mm-hmm. um, and building an organization that is strong in the areas of education, um, entrepreneurial journalism, and advocacy as well. I just yeah. kind of want to circle back to what you said about um, being there to hold journalism journalism accountable because that's kind of why we started this whole podcast, because we found at least at our J school, so at Carleton, even our professors, the representation of our professors, like all like white, like people you don't see any, any like me, I don't, I've never had a black professor. And that's something we also want to hold our school accountable because you're putting such an impression on the young students who are trying to be journalists, but yet you only have white people teaching the program. I think it's fantastic that you were 100% holding journalism accountable because you're from the bottom when people are learning to be journalists, you're giving them the impression that, oh, okay, these are the white professors, people who are successful, which is just not the case. So I think that's fantastic. I think you guys are in a great position to demand the same from your school. So much too, just in the everyday atmosphere of our classes. And like when we pitch story ideas, we had someone tell us that they pitched um, a story idea about doing this whole like long form piece about black hair and how it's so important and like uh, letting all these like different black voices speak on it and why it matters so much. And it was just like shut down because like, I think the professor said that, oh, like nobody would read that. Like why that's not like newsworthy. Newsworthy is this big thing now. Something has to be so newsworthy or don't even, don't even think of, of, spreading those voices and elevating those voices. Watch out for that language of, um, it's not newsworthy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that is um, a very codified way of shutting down um, diverse voices and, and diverse stories. And I think any journalist of color would, would attest to those, um, have, to having heard those words. That's why I was also looking at what you said, like J School Noir, like the program you guys have. Um, is that done like directly through you or do you implement that in schools? Yeah, so that is a program that um, runs through us, but in partnership with um, uh, post-secondary institutions. And so we launched that program. Our Atlantic director, Brian Daly, um, hosted that program in Halifax during African Heritage Month this year. Mm-hmm. And we invited 13 um, uh, African Nova Scotian children from around the region to to come and and experience journalism just for the day they had a black instructor with the oikel who is um, a video journalist with global news in halifax mm-hmm. um, and they also had some mentors come in and talk to them trent mcclellan portia clark vince williams it was an amazing experience for the kids and also really what we wanted to see you know kids in the newsroom or in a newsroom setting imagining themselves picturing themselves on, uh, you know, a university or college campus studying journalism. We wanted them to have that experience, even though we know not all of them are going to go into journalism, right? We know that many of the kids just want to tell stories, whether that is film or documentary, um, or maybe they want to get into, you know, blogging and that sort of thing. Um, There is one kid we know who wanted to go into law and has decided (laughs) to switch his major and now go into journalism. So we know that there is also the possibility to, to change hearts. And, and that is a, you know, part of the work that we feel like we have to do as the CABJ because so many Black kids have seen themselves poorly represented on the mm-hmm. news. Why would they want to get into exactly. this industry? So we need to help them 
see that they, first of all, empower them to tell their own stories and see that they can belong here. They don't necessarily have to work in a newsroom. If we mm -hmm. give them the tools, if we give them the skills, there are platforms, there are avenues that they could build something themselves. And so if we can inspire that entrepreneurial spirit within them as well, we consider that a success. Love that philosophy completely. I think that telling stories is our human philosophy of life. It is how mm -hmm. we get, like roll as a society. And I think it's so important. So how do you think curriculum in journalism schools should be changed to promote diversity and what changes need to happen? Um, you know, I think we're, we're starting to see that shift, you know, thankfully, um, well, actually, I shouldn't say thankfully, it's only happening because uh, Black voices are finally being listened to. In, in Toronto, the program that was announced uh, by Ryerson, or the course that was announced by Ryerson, um, about focusing on, um, you know, a, a course on Black reporting, um, or reporting on Black communities, which I know they want to build that course out um, a little bit more. Those are the kind of courses that, that should have always existed, um, you know, to broaden the perspectives of the students going through the program so that they are not, you know, like a deer in the headlights when they get into a newsroom and, and you know, need to, need to talk about communities other than the one that they grew up in. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about diversifying um, the, the curriculum um, that also extends to, you know, instructors who are Black and Indigenous and people of color, it, it means bringing in different perspectives. It means bringing in guest speakers who are diverse and who are going to challenge students to think differently. Our schools should be the first place where we begin to introduce um, young journalists to this conversation around diversity and inclusion, but it mm -hmm. hasn't been happening for years. That's something, again, that we've noticed through our university as well is our curriculum or the courses that are mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, none of the courses, courses like that are mandatory. We have an indigenous reporting course. We don't have like reporting on black communities. We don't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, people like when they go and get jobs after school, they don't know how to report on issues like that or just report on community, different communities, like what you said, other than what they grew up in. They may not even understand like, what language to use, you know, how to report properly. So that's something we want to uh, implement through our J school and have changed is to have courses like that mandatory um, because that's an extremely important and relevant skill to have. Our Indigenous reporting class, I, I was lucky enough to take it this year. Usually it's a, a fourth year class, but it, it's a fantastic class. Jorge Barrera, uh, he, he runs the class. He works for CBC Indigenous and he is just a fantastic teacher and the class in itself is, is amazing. So I was shocked that it wasn't a mandatory class. And I recently had a call with like uh, Susan Harada, who's the, um, and she finally, um, they've been like working on it for a while. So I, I think in the coming year that that class will be mandatory for every J school student. So we definitely want to see that class mandatory and then having additional classes to that class mandatory that aren't just brushing off these ideas that really need to be talked about. You know, and why courses like that aren't available at every J school or just every university. You know, we, exactly. we also have to recognize that not everybody who comes through um, a newsroom has, has come out of a, a journalism, journalism program. 
um, you know, so why programs like this don't exist just in every university, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, because what we're doing is graduating people who then end up in our newsrooms who continue to have blind spots and they have blind spots right all the way up into in, in you know into leadership so if we can get them to if we can get young journalists to check their privilege right from j school um yeah. i think you know that'll go a long way because again like you see huge news outlets and the stories they're reporting on or the way the reporters are speaking is just entirely wrong and it almost makes you wonder how they got the position they have when they're um so i think that's a huge issue that can be largely fixed hopefully um by introducing courses like that and making them mandatory in school when students are first being taught about how to navigate journalism or media in general absolutely mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that with all of the recent news and stories coming out of people quitting and people being mistreated that it's such a call to action to journalism schools i hope that people are uncomfortable and worried and want to change like that is our hope in this because of those stories like i hope that we can hear those voices and and take those steps to make change instead of just letting that sit there yeah you know that's um a big part of the reason why when um myself and anita lee of cjoc were were writing the calls to action that's why we wanted to include j schools in there because and and you notice they're the seventh call to action um, because the work really does begin there. The work of diversity and inclusion begins there. If we are only having this conversation, you know, after a journalist has been in the industry for like five or 10 years, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> we're, we're wasting yeah. time. Yeah, then what's the point? You're, you're not gonna convert anybody. And, and that's been the challenge, you know, that mm -hmm. people by that point are set in their ways, they've got their attitudes and their mindsets and, and what we're, what we're talking about through that seventh call to action is getting students and schools to think about their role from that stage. And a school at that stage, J schools at that stage, have this you know, unique opportunity to really um, open the eyes of, of young journalists, especially for white journalists who um, have not grown up in diverse communities, have not had conversations um, about systemic racism and how it impacts um, this industry, you have to know what it is if you're going to truly be an ally and help yeah. the students that you're, you know, the, the classmates that you're graduating with who are black and indigenous and people of color, how can you be an ally for them heading into the newsroom if you don't even understand the systemic racism yeah. that is gonna keep them out? Exactly. Right. That, that they're going to confront in this industry. Yeah, you have to know the history behind it because it goes. The final question we want to ask is, what is the best piece of advice you could give journalism students, communication students, anyone listening to this podcast about anything that we've talked about today? So we've talked a lot about what schools can do and, and how, you know, they need to expand learning and diversity and inclusion and all that. Um, you need to be well read. I, I think that's, you know, that's what I would say. You know, there is nothing stopping you from reading the biography of Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. There is nothing um, stopping you from, um, you know, picking up magazines and, and, and ethnic newspapers maybe that you don't normally read. Um, so I would encourage you to begin reading books, begin reading biographies, begin seeking out knowledge um, and seeking out um, those diverse voices who are outside of your community. That's how you 
um, can really begin to take control of your own learning and, and ensure that you, even if you're not getting it in your classroom, there are things that you can do to make sure that you aren't ignorant, um, you know, to make sure that you know what you don't know. Um, and so I would encourage every journalism student to, to just get out there, seek out those diverse voices, be well read, and, and, um, and I think that'll also go a long way to, to opening your eyes and help you to ask better questions. It'll also help you to, again, to be a better ally. And I always say education is the most powerful thing in the world. And I believe that if people can just take it upon themselves to educate themselves on this topic and many other ones that, um, yeah, again, like you said, that will go an extremely long way. A powerful like group of people that are in this industry and people who want to see change and these like firecracker type people. We can make change if we educate ourselves and work towards that education. We can. We can. And, and I think, you know, I do think change is possible. I don't think it's going to be easy, but I am, I am always hopeful that change is possible. And it's going yeah. to take more voices than just, you know, Black voices and Indigenous voices and people of color. It's going mm -hmm. to take everybody believing, agreeing, acknowledging that change is needed and fighting for it collectively. I just wanted to thank you for speaking with us today and taking the time out of your schedule to do it. I really appreciate it, and I'm so excited to put this out there and have people listen to what we talked about today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the invitation.